Mark chapter 12, and beginning verse 13, as the choir leaves and the kids leave, let's uh, look at God's word together. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the word of the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Jesus controversy. 
Here we are in Jerusalem with Jesus as he is being sent various enemies. They're trying to trap him. He has become a deeply controversial figure. They want to get rid of him. There is a controversy about Christianity today, too. In fact, in many ways, though uh, Christianity has always been controversial, it has become, I suppose most of us would agree, particularly controversial in Western culture in recent years. There are various moral issues at stake, ethical issues. We already thought about one of them this morning with the issue of life and death. But, of course, gender would be another one. Um, And underneath that, the whole issue about identity, who we really are as human people. Uh, Not to mention the pluralistic society in which we live. There are many different religions. and, And then there's the debate as to what is the nature of the state in which we live, the political situation. America as a political entity, is it, is it a deeply Christian country or is it founded by uh, people who are deistic as well, or even atheistic and are there deeply Christian roots in it and, and, and is it possible to have a Christian country anyway and, and, and somehow in the midst of all this, Christianity has become um, embroiled in, in uh, controversy. I was, um, one way this became very clear to me recently was with a TikTok video that was shared on my social media stream. I don't have a TikTok account, by the way. But I, uh, this was sort of, you know, you can forward TikTok videos, and so someone somehow appeared on, I think it was my Twitter account it appeared on, anyway. And I do have a Twitter account. Go ahead and follow it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, but in, on this Twitter, uh, on this uh, TikTok video, there was a, I think she was a high school teacher. I wasn't quite clear, but I think she was a high school teacher. And she was advancing her opinion about all of these deeply controversial issues. Um, and saying how, and she was giving advice actually as how within her classroom, though she was teaching something like mathematics, uh, she was managing to advance these issues in the classroom and she was advocating for that sort of approach. It's fascinating to watch it and a little freaky. But um, uh, as I watched it and listened to what she was saying and all the rest and tried to give a decent ear to what she was saying and really understand where she was coming from, um, she pointed out, and I began to notice, that in the background, you know these TikTok videos are very highly curated and very carefully put together with all sorts of bits behind them to make, send a message. And in the background uh, to this TikTok video was one of these very trendy uh, water bottles. And when I say water bottle, I mean water bottle. Okay, so just so we don't have uh, closed captioning on our TV screen, so you can, you can, you can see that well, by water bottle, I mean W-A-T-E-R, water, water bottle, you know. So I think we've communicated anyway, right? So... And on that um, water bottle, water bottle, um, <laughs> was uh, a simple statement that she pointed out. I don't care what the Bible says. Now, obviously, I wish she did care what the Bible says, but 
what intrigued me was, in her mind, and clearly in the mind of the 50 billion followers she had, however many it was, all those issues were somehow fundamentally related to Christianity, in her view, I'm not saying in my view. So within society today, Christianity has become controversial. I think we all know that. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, too, was a deeply controversial figure. He had enemies. They were trying to kill him. But while it should not surprise us that Christianity is controversial and that the message of the cross is, is a stumbling block, always has been, for some, while salvation for others, while that should not surprise us, it is critically important that we locate the controversy in the right place. They were trying to get Jesus to be controversial for things that were not the right place. And we'll look through those. Not that there isn't something to be said about those, and not that Christianity doesn't have an opinion on those things. It does, and Jesus does teach on them. But they're not the heart of the controversy. And we're really to understand the nature of the gospel of Jesus that Mark is presenting. We need to come to the heart of God's controversy of the Jesus controversy. And then we'll look at how Jesus illustrates it. So first of all, there are actually three wrong locations for the controversy. Uh, they are political, theological, and moral. And each time Jesus teaches on these, and there are controversial aspects to them, of course, but they're not the heart of it. And then we'll look at what the heart is, and then we'll see how Jesus illustrates it. So first of all, political, this controversy that was then and is still, to now, is still today in different ways a controversy, but not the heart of the controversy. Verses 13 to 17, uh, they, they sent him Pharisees and some of the Herodians. You need to underline Herodian. It's in, Mark is telling us, therefore, that this to trap him in his talk. So here's a, as I say, it's a trap to, 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 get, to kill him. Mark is telling us by, by by, by explaining that some of the Herodians came as well, that it's a political trap, because the Herodians were followers of King Herod, a political figure, of course. This isn't really a religious thing in our terminology. It's a political issue. And at face value, it's about paying taxes to Caesar or not, but actually it's a, it's a, political, um, a political matter. And, of course, paying taxes has always been politically controversial, Witness the creation of the United States of America. <laughs> but this particular tax was especially politically controversial. A, a man called Judas, not Judas Iscariot, an earlier Judas in AD 6, had tried to rebel because of this tax. And when in AD 70 the temple was destroyed by the Romans, the rebellion that happened in AD 66 that led to that destruction was because of this tax. It's a political issue, not a financial issue. And of course what they're trying to do is get Jesus to make it clear whether he's a zealot like Judas who rebelled, in which case the Romans will kill him, 
or against them, in which case he'll lose all his popular support. Which is it, teacher? So that's the trap. His answer, though, is not merely a clever ruse to get out of the problem, though uh, he, he does sort of duck and weave as they're trying to get him. But it isn't just that. It actually functions at two different levels. First, it's, a, it's an argument that people who study logic call ad hominem, which means against the person. Usually, it's thought to be a very unfair tactic. You should, shouldn't make an ad hominem argument. You should get to the, the essence of it. But there are times when it's, it's right to expose, as Jesus does here, the hypocrisy of the people asking the question. So it functions at that level. They are asking about this tax, which is about this coin, and on the coin was what pious Jews would have thought of as a graven image, an image of the pagan emperor Caesar, who of course was worshipped as God, and no pious Jew should have that coin, and Jesus, by saying, bring me a coin, is indicating that he does not have one of them, but they, by bringing it, are indicating that they do. So it just exposes they're being hypocrites. But it also functions at another level. And it's a very important theological principle that Jesus teaches about politics. He says, famously, uh, give to Caesar or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What you need to understand about that famous statement is that no other religion on the face of the planet has it, as far as I can figure out. Christianity alone believes, because we live in the now, not yet, Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen again, but he hasn't yet returned. We're in that in-between time. Because we live in the now, not yet, God's kingdom in this is, is not yet, a, is, God's kingdom is not of this world, it's within you. The God's kingdom can advance, therefore, in different political systems. Now, I you know, I'm an avowed, um, I believe in democracy, obviously. I think democracy, I've always liked what Winston Churchill said about democracy. Democracy is the best form of government. Uh, no, he the other way around, sorry. I've got to get my Winston Churchill quotations correct. Um, he said, democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the rest. Uh, so he was an advocate for it, but there's no ideal state. There are problems in democracy too, as good as it is. You can have a dictatorship of the majority. And there are all sorts of checks and balances that you need to have in place and all the rest, those who study political science. And so there are better and worse forms of political system. I'm very glad I don't live in Saudi Arabia or any other kind of North Korea. I'm glad I live in a free country. But the followers of Jesus are able to thrive in a, in a number of different political systems. Why? Because Jesus taught at the beginning, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What he's saying on the face of it is that it's perfectly possible for a follower of his to be loyal to Caesar, pause there and think what that means, loyal to a pagan emperor who claims to be God, and yet also loyal to the true God. It's possible. Difficult, no doubt, but possible. And, of course, church history proves his point. 
some of the freest countries in the world today, in Europe, uh, the church is struggling. Other countries that are not free, the church is thriving. That doesn't mean we want to live in a place where there's oppression. Those people who play, pray for the oppression of God's people, the church might thrive, seem to me to be deeply naive. I don't pray for oppression. I pray that, as Paul told Timothy to pray, I pray that uh, God will give us peaceful order that the gospel may flourish. That's what I pray for. But it is true that in a number of different political systems, you can render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Very important theological principle. Not held, as far as I can tell, by any other religion ever. Islam doesn't hold this. The end goal for Islam, and I think a lot of Christians are very naive about this, the end goal for Islam is a Muslim political state. That's the end goal. Of course it is. Always has been. But Christianity, you can render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We can be loyal citizens even of a pagan emperor. Well, that's controversial. (laughs) But it's not the heart of the controversy, amazingly. It's just a trap. What about this theological one? The Sadducees come from verses 18 to 27. Look, there's, uh, the Sadducees are asking about the resurrection because the Sadducees were an aristocratic, priestly, um, religious group who didn't believe in, uh, only believed in the authority, probably the first five books of, of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible... Um, has some witness, the rest of the Old Testament, has some explicit witness to the resurrection. Even there it's fairly minor. I mean, the explicit witness to the resurrection, there's lots of implicit in the Old Testament, but explicitly you could quote from a text from the end of Daniel chapter 12 about the dead rising, or Isaiah 26 verse 19, that the dead will rise. And So there is explicit teaching in the Old Testament about the resurrection, but, but, but none of that is in the first five books of Moses. And so the trap here is they're trying to get Jesus either to admit that he's, not, uh, that he's against the Pharisee group theologically, who did believe in the resurrection, or side with them and so lose his support. And so it's a divide and conquer theologically. If he loses his support, it will be easier to kill him. That's the trap. And it, it, it's, the actual question, of course, is absurd. Uh, for the uninitiated, a lot of theological questions, frankly, seem kind of absurd. Uh, how many, the famous one from the medieval times is how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? It seems absurd, and of course, in a sense, it is absurd. But actually, there's an important theological principle behind that, namely, what is the association between the spiritual and the physical? How many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? I mean, what, what is that association? And I'm not saying you should write a thesis on it. I'm just saying that even this question, which seems strange, you know, this brother and this brother, and Moses said that you should look after your dead brother's widow and marry her to make sure that his inheritance carries on, and therefore what happens there's seven, and there is a resurrection, then whose wife shall we be? And, and then Jesus answers, well, there's no marriage in heaven. But actually, there is an important Theological principle, 
which is that the right way to interpret the Bible is to accept the Bible as God's word and to believe that God is powerful. What does Jesus say? Is not this the reason you're wrong? Why? You know neither the scriptures, you don't really accept them all as God's word. Remember, they only took the first five books. And even then, Jesus says, you don't know those either. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Whereas right kinds of theological interpretation believe the scriptures and believe in the power of God. What does the Bible say? The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Our faith in Scripture is not a dry faith in an intellectual proposition. It is a faith in the living power of God who breathed out God's Word. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Well, they didn't have that, which is why they were in error. And Jesus then quotes from the book of Moses. It's an amazing reply. I mean, what a brilliant interpreter Jesus was I mean he says I am the God of Abraham he says uh, don't you don't even know the bit about Moses where he says I'm the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob God says that to Moses and and then therefore implicitly of course uh, he's not the God of the dead he's of, of the living and therefore there must be a resurrection um these kind of theological issues are important massively That song we sang earlier, Abide With Me, witnesses to that. That was actually written by a pastor who became a Bible-believing preacher with a very flourishing ministry in Devon on the south coast of England because he went to the deathbed of 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 a pastor who didn't accept the Scriptures, to his deathbed. And that pastor who didn't accept the Scriptures admitted on his deathbed what deep regrets he had that he didn't believe the, literal, the Bible is the literal word of God. And what he said is he admitted his regret to his friend, fellow pastor, was, stay with me, don't leave me, stay with me, or abide with me. Oh, it matters that you believe the scriptures and the, and the power of God. I hope you do. But even that isn't the heart of the controversy. Amazingly. It's a trap to which Jesus answers, but it's not the real issue according to Jesus. Not political, not obscure theological debates. This denomination, that denomination, this theory, that theory. No, what is it? Well, maybe it's moral. (laughs) Amazingly, that also isn't the heart of the controversy. It's another trap, I think. Um, Verses 28 to 34, maybe traps too strong, a patronizing approach. You notice that when uh, the scribe comes up and he's, he's, I love this bit. I mean, I think Mark is being uh, very sarcastic here. That's my view. Verse 28 The scribe comes up and seeing that Jesus answered well. Can you imagine feeling that? There's Jesus teaching the Bible and you're thinking inside saying, well, that's quite a good sermon. I mean, the arrogance of the man is astonishing. And to underscore that, he he sort of says, uh, he, 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 he says the same He articulates the same thing himself later, verse 32. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, or well said, teacher. 
Thumbs up, Jesus, I approve. And the arrogance is just mind-blowing. And though he does approve of what Jesus says, and though Jesus says he answered wisely, that is, he also said the right thing about what's the summary of the law, note well what Jesus says to him. Verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What Jesus does not say is, you are therefore in the kingdom of God. He's only not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, the moral issue is not that it's not that at the deepest level, as important as it is to love God and love people. And as much as loving God and loving people is a summary of the law, it's not the heart of the issue. In fact, of course, loving God and loving people is a summary of the law. It's not a summary of the Bible. I've heard so even sophisticated Christian theologians make this mistake. Nowhere does Jesus say loving God and loving people is a summary of all the scriptures. The scriptures point to him. He is what the scriptures are about. The law, well, it's to love God and love people. None of us keep the law. And therefore, the Bible tells us a story of redemption, of rescue, which is finally fulfilled in Jesus, who died and rose again, that sinners like us who break the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, do not keep that law, may be saved. To advocate that loving God and loving people is a summary of the Bible is to preach pure, unadulterated moralism. It's not the gospel. It's the law. It's just... Blows my mind these days when I go onto web pages. Occasionally, you know, someone will send me uh, a resume or something. They're looking to apply for a job or whatever it may be. Or, and I go to some other church or I go to some mission organization or ministry or something like that. And I notice that their mission statement is love God and love people. Well, obviously, I agree with that. But my dear brother and sister, that's not even a Christian statement exclusively. You can go to a synagogue and hear that. How can that be your vision statement? I've rather whimsically occasionally thought to myself, I should email the leaders of such an organization quoting their vision statement and say, congratulations, you're not far from the kingdom of God. (laughs) It's not the point. The point is Jesus and rescue. Otherwise, all we're teaching is moralism. And we're surprised that the young people out there are turned off because all they hear is the weight of the law. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, yes, but I don't. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, yes, but I don't. What What hope is there then? Well, you're not far from the kingdom of God if you're asking that question. Have I got good news for you? And so therefore we come to the the real heart of the controversy. There is is a Jesus controversy. And uh, Jesus himself explains it. They dare not ask any more questions. Now Jesus is saying, here it is. And then he'll illustrate it with a bad example and a good example. 
So verse 35, 37, here it is, he teaching, teaching the temple. He says, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit, so he's quoting from the Old Testament. Look, it's all, how's this going to be fulfilled? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, hold on, says Jesus. This text, very well known, they would have been familiar with. How on earth is that possible? Put your thinking caps on. By the way, vibrant Christianity does not mean throwing away your brain. Uh, C.S. Lewis was so good on this. Over and over again, he encouraged the reading of old books and the dip, digging deeply into doctrine. He said in one place, uh, he wrote on uh, the value of reading old books, he said in one place, may, maybe other people have the same experience as I have, that, that popular modern devotional books will leave them cold, but when they dig into really old doctrinal book with, as he, in his inimical way put it uh, with a pipe in your mouth and a pencil in your hand you'll find that your heart is moved by thinking like if your heart is cold you need to think that's the way to the heart through the mind he says look think about this David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Good question. And they heard him gladly because he's making them think. But of course, the answer to the question for those of us who are Christians should be obvious. What's the answer? Well, the answer is, as Mark has been preaching all the way along, you you remember he says right at the beginning, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the theme throughout the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, here it is. How is it possible that he can be both Son of David and also Lord God? Well, the answer is that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. He's fully human and fully divine. He is Jesus is the Son of God. That's the answer. And that, my friends, that is the heart of the controversy. All the other things that we argue about these days, this moral issue, this political issue, this theological issue, all these other controversies that that when you read about them and hear about them, watch videos about them, they seem so profound and so complicated and so nuanced and all sort of, at the very heart of it all, is will we accept that Jesus is God. And he defines who I am. And he defines what my life is about. And he defines what the church is about. And he defines who does what in his house. And he defines the rule of his kingdom throughout the world. And he defines how we do evangelism. And he defines what it means to interpret the Bible. And he defines how we may live in this world, in this political system. He defines it all. Why? Because at the heart of the issue is will we accept that Jesus is God? That's the question. That's the question of the whole book of Mark. That is the Jesus controversy. And you say, well, why? I'm not sure I want to accept Jesus as God. That's, that's, that's hard. To let him rule over my life, to be the Lord of my life, what's that going to lead to? Well, as I say, it's actually good news, Jesus' lordship, not bad news. And... To show that, he illustrates that with a bad example and a good example. Look, here's Jesus saying, I think this is why Mark's putting these two stories together at the end to illustrate it. He's saying that this this is what it's like if you don't accept Jesus' lordship. You try to be religious nonetheless. So verses 38 to 40, what's it like? Here are these religious leaders. 
not accepting Jesus as God, what are they like? Well, they're very fancy. They walk around in long robes. You can, there, are people, there are people like that then. There are people like this today too. You know, they've got the fancy religious robes. They like the greetings in the marketplaces. They want everyone to know them and they want to have uh, large followings in the social media market, you know. And they want the best seats in the synagogues or be on the platform in the churches. And they want the places of honor at feasts. When there's a big conference and everyone gets together, they want to be front and center. This type is everywhere, always has been. You want to be like that, Jesus is saying? Look at them. That's what it's like to be religious but not accept him as God. And it gets worse, he says, uh, verse 40. They devour widows' houses and pretend to make long prayers. That is, they are predatory financially. So not usually this is sort of preach like their, their fundraising techniques are manipulative, which I'm sure they were. But the point Jesus is making is, is, is stronger than that. What he's actually saying is they are preying on the most vulnerable. They're devouring widows' houses. They're predators. And, of course, they're pretending as well. They pretend to make long prayers whenever I read that part of Jesus' teaching, I was reminded of something Charles Spurgeon used to say about how there's a certain habit of, of praying very lengthy prayers in, in some circles. And he, um, uh, it's D.L. Moody, not Charles Spurgeon, excuse me. D.L. Moody used to make the joke, D.L. Moody, who was a kind of cut and thrust, kind of straight down the line, get down to uh, the bottom line kind of person. And D.L. Moody once said about people who love to uh, pray long prayers, he would say, some men's prayers should be cut short at either end and set on fire in the middle. Uh, absolutely. But there's a pretense. If, if we do not accept Jesus, the Son of God, well, it's not, it's not, the question is not, the controversy is not, will we be religious or not? People are always religious, whether they are religious in an atheistic way or religious in different religions. Or, or, or every human being has a desire for some kind of transcendent meaning, whether they worship the universe through the natural order of things and the mystery of the cosmos. They're, we're going to be religious. But if we're religious without accepting Jesus as God, we're going to end up like this. trying to look good because we know we're not good because we don't keep the law. Well, what is it like to follow Jesus? And here I think, when you read my mother who died a couple of years ago, when she first became a Christian, she would tell me, I asked her what it was. that She had quite a complicated upbringing, to say the least, and when she became a Christian, her brother um, shared the message with her. He'd become a Christian. When I asked my mother what it was that drew her to Christianity, she said, when I read the Gospels, when I read the Gospels, I just fell in love with Jesus. How can you not fall in love with Jesus? Here he is. What's, what's his perfect example for what it means to follow him? Who do you think Jesus would pick? The professor with three PhDs from Harvard? The guy with the largest following on Twitter? The guy who's written three best-selling books on the New York Times? 
Actually, it's not a man at all. It's a woman. And in our youth fixated age, where everyone's trying to figure out how to appeal to the young, Jesus picks probably someone who's old. Certainly vulnerable, if not old. A widow. Poor. No money. Not successful. That's his choice of what it means to follow him. Why? Well, he's watching it. You notice how he's watching? I love that too. He sat down opposite the treasury, verse 41. He watched the people. Jesus is watching. Other people may not see, but he does. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. And here is the object lesson. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now the way that must not be preached is to sort of use that to manipulate poor widows to sell their houses. That would be ironic, wouldn't it? Given Jesus is just made it very clear that false religious leaders devour widows' houses. Now the point is that if you... that right at the heart of the... Contra, that the, 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 at the heart of the controversy, the real Jesus controversy, is do we accept Jesus as God in every area of our lives? Financial... Sexual, career, here's this poor widow. He's saying uh, she gets it. She's all in. She put in everything she had. When I uh, read these two examples, I think of a couple of people I knew One was a very gifted man. You should have heard him pray. He was sublime. Probably the most gifted, certainly one of the most gifted pulpiteers I've ever heard. Astonishing. Looking back, it's interesting how he liked to wear a certain robe. He loved to wear that thing. We used to joke about it, thought he looked ridiculous. But he loved to wear it. And there was a chair on the platform that was his chair. And there was another person I knew from around the same time. She is now a widow. Her clothes were always plain, not fancy. She was never on the platform, but behind the scenes, she gave everything she had to Jesus. She loved him. Why? Because he had saved her. The Son of God who gave himself up for us that we might live. That's the heart of the Jesus controversy. And Mark 
is calling us to put our faith in Jesus as Son of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you that uh, you are a saving God, a redeeming God. We pray, Lord, that you will work powerfully in our midst this morning for your glory. That we, uh, like the widow, as saved people, might then give all we have to you. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you with that. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that when we read about uh, you in in the New Testament, it's so easy to fall in love with you. Oh, move in our hearts by your spirit, we pray, through our mind uh, to cause us to follow the example of this poor widow. Yes, financially, Lord, but the point is everything. How we think about ourselves, how we think about our money, our lives, our family, our, our sexuality, our, our careers. Lord, you are God. You define the whole thing. And we trust you. We love you. And we bow before you as our God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.